Really excited about today because for a change, I've got a special guest here in the Fat Cave and he's a bloke that I've been wanting to talk to for ages. Effectively, he's kind of me, which is scary and I don't know how he feels about that, but we'll find out in a minute, but in a different domain. The chap's name is Michael West. He's an independent journalist and I first became aware of him when he lifted the lid on a whole bunch of corporate tax dodges here in Australia and he's done a whole bunch of other brave journalism, right? And if you really need to know what's going on in the society around you as it sort of crumbles, I'd strongly suggest you check out his channel, which is The West Report. I'll put a link in the description. And basically, this is gonna be just completely unscripted off the bat, and it's gonna be a Joe Rogan-esque chat. So with all that out of the way, G'day, Michael. Nice to meet you. G'day, John. Pleasure to be in the in the fat cave. Yeah, be deep below stately Chateau Schittsville. Birds so, tweeting in the background. All Superb of that. environment. Nature. Okay, so for people who aren't aware of you, uh, how would you categorise yourself? Well, a bit like you, John, in, in some respects. Um, Ex-mainstream or corporate media, a refugee from corporate media, um, who has gained some audience outside by virtue of the great luxury of simply being able to tell the truth. That is a scary concept, right? And it shouldn't be because one of the things you should be able to rely on a journalist to do is accurately report what's happening around you. And yet when I decided to do that, I had to really take a big leap of faith to do that. And once I'd done it, I looked around, it was kind of like uh, Dresden on the 15th of February, 1945. So I, I'm kind of interested to find out your experience of departing from the fold and actually telling the truth. What, what was that like for you? Well, uh, I've always worked for big institutions. News Corp for eight years, Rupert Murdoch's The Australian Newspaper and then The City Morning Herald, where I started at the Fin Review and then came back. So they're essentially, if you're a print journal, particularly a business or finance journal, well, that was my, that's where I started, uh, you only have two shops in town. Well, you can go to TV, but it's either The Herald and The Age, Fin Review, which is Fairfax, or News Corp, which is essentially The Australian uh, in serious business. So... Um, I got sacked for the crime of journalism in uh, 20, early 2016. Uh, we, I didn't care much because my dad had just died and we were very close. And I, I just said, well, what am I going to do now? Uh, so I went to Bali for a few weeks and came back and decided, well, I'm not just going to continue what I'm doing, journalism. And, of course, there are barriers to entry, but they're low from a cost point of view, starting your own website and so on. So I put my redundancy check in there. And um, just started to just do investigative stuff, just have a crack, do stuff that people wouldn't do properly in the corporate media or the mainstream media. And um, self-censorship now is a big problem besides actually, as you know, from Channel 9 and Channel 7 being tapped on the shoulder by the people that have been chatting with advertising managers for large multinational car companies. Yeah. Uh, so you've got that pressure, but you've also got the pressure you know, you've got your mortgage, you're, you're being paid X amount and you want to keep your job uh, and you have a pressure to bite your lips sometimes and, and not tell the truth because you know it's going to upset somebody. I was going to say, this is a key point about the truth and I don't think ordinary people get this, okay? When you tell the truth, someone's going to hate it and if it's a good story, it's usually the person about whom or the organisation about which you tell the truth, right? 
and they can come after you in some pretty serious ways. Like corporations in particular have infinite resources to pursue someone like you or me. And you've been sort of stung with the odd defo threat, haven't you? I got six last year, even from a bloke who bloke who had a website, ripped off all my content and put it on his own website. And, uh, and then when I pointed this out on social media, he, he threatened to sue me. So, uh, you know, it, it also by um, people with a bit of dough, they're the ones you've got to worry about because defamation is expensive. You've got to hire lawyers and so on. Because it's not really often about the damage that you might have done to their reputation. It's about shutting you it's up. It's about muzzling you. Or just almost, I think, 99% of the time it's that. I'd say there's one out of 100 where they really do feel injured and they do want to take you to court and they do want, usually it's just to force you to take a story down yep. that you've done. And so you just go back and you say, well, the facts are correct, uh, so I'm not going to take it down. And then they can ramp it up a bit and threaten you a bit more and, you know, we're going to take it to the cleaners. Well, the, the, the essential threat is we'll take your house off you if you don't take the story down. Apologise in words of our choosing. Yeah. <laughs> and pay for the cost of this letter that we just threatened you with. <laughs> One of the right. funniest things I ever learned, this was when they were training us to be radio hosts, right? Uh, they got some high-ranking solicitor to come in who was an expert at this kind of thing, and he said, One of the last things you ever want to say if anyone pursues you is don't say, I didn't mean it, right? Because then you lose your defence of honest opinion, mm. right? And there's all these kind of really kooky things that that go into that side of the business. But there is a really serious aspect to this. And I kind of do a very similar thing to what you do in the domain about cars. Like, I don't give a shit what a car company thinks when I do a report, right? It's the furthest thing from my mind. It's like, it doesn't even, it's not even there. I'm not trying to annoy them, but if they don't like it, okay. Too bad. And this leads to doing a whole bunch of stories that other outlets won't do, like covering things like Volkswagen's record fine for breaches of consumer law. And actually calling it a criminal conspiracy, which is what it was, yeah. rather than saying, oh, it's a bit of a, it's not very good. Well, but they've been a bit naughty. They've been a bit naughty, <laughs> but of course, it gets back to the money, doesn't it? Yeah. If you are paid by corporate advertisers, large car companies, then it is very hard to present an honest opinion about them. Yeah, and then who comes first, right? Is the media there to inform the audience or is it just there as a delivery system for advertising? If advertisers come first, then the audience goes under the bus and they don't get the truth. So you're servicing one or the other. Yeah. And one of the stories that blew me away that you did, which is just like this, was that interview with David McBride. Mm. And for those of you who don't know, David McBride is a former soldier. He was a lawyer in the Defence Force and he's written a check, right? He went to places like Afghanistan and he wrote a cheque payable in the sum of up to his own life at any time. So this is a serious commitment to the nation. And he became very concerned about the conduct of the Defence Force generally uh, over there. And he tried to get that resolved, didn't he? Like, this is the thing about whistleblowers, mm. okay? Like, he's a, he's a guy who's got unimpeachable credentials, mm. as I see it. And he tried to get these issues resolved uh, from within, and the only reason he blew the whistle was because that resolution would not be forthcoming through official channels, right? Absolutely. But the irony, of course, is that we get a pat on the back from people saying, oh, thank goodness you're doing some journalism there, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with your opinion. Yeah. But I always say, well, hang on, we're just doing our job. We're meant to be doing that. 
The failure <laughs> is in the rest of the corporate media. In McBride's case and the case of all the other whistleblowers, Bernard Caleri in the, yeah. in the, in the Timor Less situation and so on, these guys that are fighting the government and large corporations, that is beyond their call of duty. They're not just doing their job. If they're doing their job, they could shut up, earn their money, and just go and have a whinge at a dinner party. Sure. Uh, but these guys are, are really showing particular courage and, um, and, and the public interest. Um, Mr. McBride is looking down the barrel of, effectively, because of his age, he's looking down the barrel of potentially spending the rest of his life in prison. Life in jail. Yeah. And he sort of shrugged that off when you interviewed him. It's like, yeah, well, if that's the price I pay for doing that kind of thing. And that's, that's a gutsy effort. And I don't know why the rest of the media is not all over that kind of thing, because when you look at what does get a run, you know, Kylie's cellulite shame sort of thing as an alternative, then there's issues that matter and there's issues that don't matter. And often a lot of these issues that matter, they don't get a run. Well, defence, of course, is highly, well, defence reporting is highly compromised because you're not going to put, if you're a mainstream or the ABC, you're not going to put somebody there if they're going to ask too many questions and question, you know, the ridiculous excess and wastage of government defence spending, like the other day when we wrote about the three or four billion dollars that Dutton's spending on tanks, tanks for a, 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 an island, uh, things like that. I mean... Yeah, we've already got a moat. We've got <laughs> what the moat. We, what we do we need, need the tanks, the tanks for? That's right. So, I mean, the, if you're going to start questioning that stuff, you're going to be moved from defence to, um, uh, you know, leisure, leisure and cuisine or something yeah, like yeah. that. You're not going to be around a defence for long. So it's... This is... It's, a, I think... The self-censorship thing is even bigger than the actual direct editorial interference because as a journalist, and I don't blame the young journalists, they're just, it's the management of these companies which has failed. Sure. And now it's so brought widespread, the failure of mainstream media, and as independent media grows to make up that vacuum to compensate, it's so widespread that you've got to wonder where it's going to from here. I mean, where does it end? Well, here's the thing that I see in motoring, right? Car companies have this sort of little tiny enclave of domesticated motoring journalists and they sling them a car every week and they invite them on all the gigs, right? They go on all the launches and pre-COVID that meant platinum frequent flyer status. I'm off to Milan for a couple of days kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And all you've got to do, and they never actually say that, right? But the implicit contract that you enter into if you want to join that club is just say nice things about us you know and if you wouldn't mind just water down the criticism i know you've got to be critical of the car to some degree but could you just make it inconsequential bury it in the 10th paragraph yeah, yeah right at the end mm. and just don't make it too harsh and we'll invite you back next time kind of thing and i see that everywhere i see it in the political domain i see it in the in the general news domain because i don't see too much harsh criticism of harvey norman ever well harvey norman is gets a free ticket i mean there's all sorts of issues around harvey norman it's accounting and so on it's it's dominance it's refusing to pay back job keeper there's all sorts of things but of course you won't because harvey norman Huge is appetizer. perhaps the biggest yeah perhaps the biggest corporate advertiser i mean they buy out the front page of newspapers so these guys running these newspapers are saying here have my front page that's how much i feel about my editorial integrity i'm going to give it i'm going to make it the harvey norman herald yeah the harvey norman age and uh you, you've got to wonder where it's going because 
Corporations are getting bigger and more powerful. Their power over democracy is growing. They all donate corporately to the two major political parties. Uh, they get bigger. They take, there's a rash of takeovers on at the moment. Since COVID started, you've got, you've got a massive one. You've got these guys from Brookfield, this, these tax haven guys coming after Osnet at the moment, which is a, an $18 billion deal. Now, that's going to go. That pays $100 million a year tax. That's going to that's gonna evaporate. That'll go to the Caymans or Bermuda. Yeah. Uh, and so will control of that asset um, because these guys are notorious tax dodgers. And I say that about them the whole time, and I never hear boo out of them because yeah. it's easy to prove. All you've got to do is go and get their accounts, and you go, how much tax did you pay last year? You got $5 billion in income. Oh, zero tax again for seven years in a row. I know. How does that work? I mean, if, if these corporations paid tax at a tenth of the rate that you and I pay tax, the nation would be awash in money, seemingly, because there's all of these corporations that pay no tax because ostensibly they've got a head office in, I don't know, friggin' Dublin or something. Well, they just do deals to siphon the money out. Usually they give themselves loans from overseas called debt loading. This is how the big Exxon and Chevron do it. And, yeah. they, and the interest on those loans goes over to some other place overseas and that's before the tax line. So that's one way. I mean, there are lots of ways, transfer pricing and all that. But the interesting thing was I've done a little bit on the motoring industry. I've gone through a few sets of accounts because mm. they're not easy to get. You've got to go to ASIC, pay them 41 bucks yeah, for sure. this public information. And these guys, they fax it in. And so some of it's blurred and stuff <laughs> like that. I mean, it is insane how what they will do to hide and, and obfuscate. But the car companies, they're bad. They're big tax avoiders. But in their defence, and John, I've watched many of your videos referring to the competition in the market, the one thing I would say about cars, unlike fossil fuels, the gas sector, which is a cartel, unlike media, unlike lots of sectors, there is competition sure. in cars. Oh, they so hate there are other. bona fide yeah. losses. Yeah. And when they stuff up, they make losses and they don't have to pay tax, which is natural. But they can store those tax losses for years. You know, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. Well, that's why Nissan pays no tax because they used to make cars here and they uh, incurred loss after loss after loss and they're just carrying it forward. Just right? match, match, it over, match it to the profits every yeah. year. And then, of course, if it goes really bad, in the case of Holden, you don't exist anymore. Oops, a daisy. Well, they, this is a classic to do with the, the media and, and car reporting because I know, not very well, but the, the car reporters at Australian and, the, and Fairfax and that sort of thing, and we'd occasionally have a chat and I'd say, look, I'm just trying to get hold of the... General Motors, the GM accounts or the Holden accounts and the, the Ford accounts and Toyota. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't know. Where. <laughs> no, you know, so, well, there's yeah. no, so there's no money trail understanding, but they are, as you say, driving around in a brand new flash car every week. And, and, and you don't get to be the motoring reporter because you got tired of being the lead investigative reporter or the national political affairs correspondent. You usually sort of a little bit further down the barrel than that, more like in the turd mine rather than the creme de la creme of investigative journalists. And you're the only guy at each company doing it. There's only one motoring yeah, reporter. Yeah. Maybe it was different back in the day, but usually there's one in each media organisation, isn't there? You were at nine and seven and, and so on. So that gives them a little, that gives them protection because people don't actually quite know what they do. But it was funny when you say, you know, when GM and Ford are about to leave the country, you know, have you seen the old man having a look at their accounts? And when, when you get them, you're going, hey, look at this money. They siphoned out these loans to themselves to Mexico in the case <laughs> of uh, General Motors. Yeah. And Ford had some other 
scam going, but there is at least in that market, John, there's there's competition in cars. Mm. Uh, it's a big, probably the second biggest market in Australia after houses, I guess. Certainly with relevance to consumers. There's a huge market in yeah. fossil fuels, though, obviously, because... Well, that's a big export market, of course. Yeah, and domestic consumption, too, because 30 billion litres of liquid fossil fuels and untold tonnes of coal being burnt in Australia for the grid. So there's a lot of onshore consumption as well. I just don't understand. I've always wondered about this. We've got some of the cheapest liquid fuel in the world, and that's principally because we pay some of the lowest levels of taxation on fuel. And I know average Australians hate buying fuel. It's a grudge purchase. They all think it's a rip-off, but go to Italy and buy a litre of petrol and see how you feel about Shoot that. elsewhere. Yeah. So... How have we all? How have we arrived in a situation where we've got some of the cheapest liquid fuel, but we pay some of the highest electricity prices? I don't get that. We got more coal than just about anyone else. Well, electricity has a quirk in the structure of the market where the major companies that operate the grid and feed in their their coal power or their renewables or whatever they go and they set the prices themselves they say this is how much it's going to cost me for the next i've got to spend this money on these transmission lines there's 300 million there and so that has to go and then the regulator who's basically a small crew of people are up against armies of lawyers and consultants and engineers who've done engineering reports oh we'll have to spend 300 million on these you know, the, co- the big coat hangers, the mm. transmission. These sort of things all go on the bill in the end. And so they, it, over a period of 20 years after they corporatised it and then privatised it, um, and, of course, they split it into umpteen different companies, retailers and wholesalers and distributors. And so, you know, the poles and wires people, and each one of those had to have their own human resources, public relations, executive team, finance and legal they all had these different little kingdoms and infrastructures, and that just went to the cost. Back in the day, you can, you know, the the, the head of the New South Wales SEC had trudge up the street to Macquarie Street to Senate estimates, and he'd sit down in front of three or four politicians, and and they'd say, "Your electricity prices are up three percent this year. This is this is bad." And the guy would go, "Yeah, we had a few blackouts," and you know, they had to explain themselves because there was only one bloke, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he was the he was the the face of it all, the grey cardigan face of the bureaucracy. But he had to explain himself. There was accountability. Now there's four thousand senior this- executive managers of this and that at different organisations, and it's a it's it's bigger than Ben Hur. And it's all controlled. A lot of it's controlled. The, you know, the gas pipelines are controlled by Singapore and China, and. Uh, you know, there's a lot of foreign fossil fuel companies in it. They're not really responsible or accountable. They're pretty opaque. The mainstream media never holds them to account or rarely holds them to account unless there's a big scandal. And then they all pile in and bayonet the dead, like in the Volkswagen. Yeah, yeah, they'll yeah. ignore the story and then, and then suddenly they'll have to cover it and then it's overkill on yeah. one company. You know? Okay, so it's been an interesting few years, the last three years in particular. It's been, let's be kind, interesting. And I finally crossed this threshold where I'm actually embarrassed to be Australian, right? I just am. I would hate to be in the United Kingdom or America or Italy or France and have to explain to some person that I'm Australian because we've become a global laughingstock and we've sort of become inured to the status quo being Anyone in authority, you know, 
Skoma or Gladys or Dan Andrews, anyone like that, it's kind of acceptable now for them just to vomit bullshit in front of a camera and we all swallow and we don't get a say in it. And I'm just wondering how we went, how we came from the Australia that you and I grew up in and how we've developed into this society where the staple diet is bullshit. How did that happen? Well, it comes back to media and the control of media by government, which we were talking about before, and by corporations that fund the political parties uh, and so on. And I think you know, there used to be a thing called the doctrine of ministerial accountability. There was that bloke <laughs> that came in on the plane with a teddy bear for his grandchild. Uh, he came in and he brought a teddy bear in that he didn't declare at customs and he had to fall on his sword <sighs> because he'd broken the rules. And now there aren't any rules. There's just, you know, but, but the media isn't holding them to account. This is the problem. They're getting soft shoot all over the place. But the, the thing I'm talking about with bullshit here is like Gladys Berejiklian is not stepping down because of allegations of corruption. She's a victim of ICAC, right? That's like framing the debate in these patently bullshit ways and everybody's just sitting there going, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And the narrative is she's a victim. Well, it's a lack of understanding. I mean, Gladys is a classic example. I mean, ICAC is just a, an exploratory body that goes and does the analysis and finds if there's a case. Sure. It doesn't press charges. It's the DPP. It presents a case of the DPP, and then they, they might take it to court. So it's not a witch hunt body. It doesn't have those kind of powers. And, of course, that was, mis that was framed poorly. It's the triumph, John, it's a triumph of PR to remember, we're probably about the same vintage. I remember when I first started in journalism, there were no PRs. I called the head of Woolworths, a guy called Paul Simon. I got straight to call his secretary to, as a junior reporter, straight through to the head of Woolworths. <laughs> that would never happen. Now, now. they've got a yeah. phalanx oh, yeah. of public relations people. Sure. Every company, every politician's got public relations people. In the old days, there used to be, even a few years after that, there was there was about one PR for every 10 journalists. Mm. And now there would be 20 PRs for every one journalist. Like how many spin doctors would ScoMo have on staff? Like the, the, the Prime Minister's department is huge. Well, a lot of it's um, external consultants set up, but his Prime Minister's department, he'd probably have, there's about, we've, we've checked this out because there's, there's something like 10 or 11 that we could find, fossil fuel-related people in ScoMo's office. There's no wonder <laughs> fossil fuels... <laughs> have such a big say, you know, his chief of staff, his major advisors, all fossil fuel linked. And there's so much money there trying to preserve the status quo, you know. But he would probably have, oh, he'd have access to all sorts of PR advice, but there'd be a number of PRs, maybe five, 10, 15 in his department. Depends how you frame them. I mean, sure. are, are they real black arts ones or are they press release writers yeah, or yeah. what are how they? How many interns but, are there? And all that, of that kind stuff, of thing. Yeah. It, it is nuts though because there's two different things right there's doing what's right for the nation and then there's talking about it and it seems to me that talking about it's become more important than doing what's right because what's right is like let's take a look at what the voters think about that or which way are the polls running when the, the classic case is taking four days or whatever it was to evict Novak Djokovic, right? Mm. It's like, which way is the electorate leaning on this? Mm. And we'll jump the way that's going to just garner 
the most support from the electorate. It's all focused. It's not about what's right. It's not defending our borders. If you believe the Prime Minister, it's keeping our borders strong. Got to get rid of it. He was was found to be unpopular. They sniffed the breeze after a few days. They went, we're going to get votes out of this and chuck him out of the country. We'll we'll go strong on borders. It was nothing to do with that. But, John, the triumph of image over substance is, is what's happened, absolutely. And the fact that there's no accountability... Mind you, the government's been running with a one-seat majority, so it would totally fall in more of a heap if they did lose that. So they've got to protect people, uh, you know, like Christian Porter and these sort of people. They have to protect them just to keep their their power. So, well, I, Mr. I, Potato Head wants a slush fund, essentially, to sue journalists, to sue anybody, anybody. who defames them, like Jordan Shanks, for example, or mm. you know. I don't know if you'd categorise Jordan as a journalist. He's, he's certainly not a mainstream journalist, but he does some pretty friggin' good stories. Well, he's better than most journalists because he doesn't rewrite press releases. It's all original. He does his own work. I mean, yeah. he does a lot of like does a lot of entertainment stuff, but he does a lot of deep investigation. Yeah, got people around him that help him with that. He gets a lot of tips because they know that he'll have a crack yeah. and he'll try and get to the bottom of it, and he won't. He's not in fear of defamation. He's not in fear of being tapped by, by you know, Nissan on the, the Nissan Public Relations Department or the people up the chain from him because there is nobody up the chain. He can't lose his house because he hasn't got one to lawyers. But yet if you So listen, he has a bit of freedom that other people don't have. Yeah, but if you listen to John Barillaro, the former Deputy Premier of New South Wales, mm. during his resignation announcement, you know, Gladys might have been a victim of ICAC. John Barillaro, according to him, mm. was a victim of online YouTube comedian Jordan Shanks. He's a I victim mean, of a comedian. On. Come on. How can you be a victim of a comedian? <laughs> it's a tragedy. <laughs> like, we, we really have entered bullshit world. Like, oh, like no. the world no. is built on a foundation of bullshit now because and, there's no question that, that the timing of... Uh, the timing of ICAC and the resignation of those two from New South Wales politics, that wasn't coincidental. It didn't seem coincidental to me. No, it's, a, it's, it's not coincidental. But I, Gladys is a, cl- a classic case in point, very popular in the mix. You know, it's all about image and mm. stuff like that. And she, she does present as somebody with a lot of conviction. So she'd get up every day. We follow the health advice. You must follow the health advice. Everybody follow the health advice, you know. Uh, and, of course, we just put in the... Clearing away the the, tr- the forest for the trees, we just I said to Callum, who I work with, could just ring him up and ask him what the actual health advice is. Can we get a look at this health advice, this, this magical health advice? And, and this the, would have been the first time they'd been asked that question. Well, nobody asked them. Yeah. What, what, what is the health advice? Yeah. We spent um, something like eight weeks and finally we put an FOI in, you know, went through the proper channels and we got not the health advice. We got um, a list of their video appearances, uh, the daily press conferences, just just sort of links to those. Really? So they're very cynical about it. They don't care because they've got the media on their side. And the media is on their side because the media is bought off from political donations from from the... If you look at what's happening now, the systems... I come from the finance journalism world. You're in cars. That's happening in politics too. You've got the messages from the PMO, from the Prime Minister and the Treasurer, funneled through the big news, their big decisions on in the national interest or not, coming through this funnel into a small clique of journalists. And then 
I'm not criticising the journalists because if they don't run a story because they think it's rubbish, they're going to get a call from their editor the next day saying, hey, you know, the Australian had this story, the H had this story, why don't we have this story? Well, Guardian's in that position, unfortunately. They, they, they've got to write some rubbish occasionally, even though they don't like it, because if they don't, they get frozen off the list, like the motoring journalist that writes the, the yeah, true well, story. Well, we're all on a field, like we're all on a playing field, right? And playing fields have rules. And if you're a player and you don't adhere to the rules, mm. you get sin-binned, mm. right? And it's just that the rules are not in the public interest anymore. No, they, they, they aren't. And the question, of course, is where it gets. If you could tell me, please do. I mean, <laughs> where, where does it go to from here? Because it has got to the ridiculous point. Donald Trump, of course, helped because people were watching him just lying every day and just not caring. And that's what we've got now with Scott Morrison. I mean, he, he couldn't sue you. Well, he could try for defamation for calling him a liar, which people do all the time because... You've got the truth defence. <laughs> you've got... <laughs> mind you... <laughs> Truth defence isn't everything. I can still come after you yeah. and, wait and soak up a lot of your money in, in, in lawyers' fees. It can cost you a lot to win. It can cost you a lot to win that, to even get to the courtroom steps. But that's what's happened. I think people have figured out, well, people are going to like me or hate me anyway. You've got a certain amount of people that have set voters on either side. Hmm. We've just got to capture the middle. That's our game. Or the swinging whatever, because yeah. then you tend to pander to extremists, though, don't you? Like the extreme views one way or the other. Like there's, there's, there's a risk that average... Australians get thrown under the bus because they're kind of rusted on one way or the other. And then people on the fringes are the ones you can more or less appeal to. That's what you've got to get. And that's why all this money, the pork barrelling money is like never before. People have tried to put a price tag on it, 16 billion of our money yeah. being used to buy votes in marginal electorates or ones where they think they can tip the scales. And it's all down to spreadsheets, colour-coded spreadsheets, yeah, as we know. So it's become very... But it is a big game of bullshit. There's no doubt about that. And what we've seen at the same time over the last few years is eroding credibility in government. And my point is that the problem with eroding credibility is that governments no longer have a licence to make any brave, courageous, logical policy and reform because they don't really have a mandate for the people because nobody trusts them. Well, this is a very important point and this is the most worrying thing about living on bullshit world, right? Because... You and I and everybody who watches this report, right, we've got a contract with society. And most, most of us have a functioning contract with society. We mm. buy in. When, a bad, when, when the sons of anarchy kick the front door down and you call the cops, you expect them to turn up, right? Mm. And if you fall off your ladder and break your leg, you expect the ambos to turn up, right? Because this is part of the reciprocity of your contract with society. But what I see now is we see the death of trust, not just in politicians, but we see the death of trust in major institutions. We see the death of trust in experts, like people who've spent 20 years of their lives learning how to be virologists. I trust them on the issue of vaccines because I spent seven years of my life learning how to be an engineer and I know what makes that beam stop the floor from collapsing, you know? Mm. So anybody who's serious enough to be a world-leading virologist, I'm going to trust what they say because you can't do that frivolously. You, you can't become that virologist frivolously. So if they say the mRNA vaccines are the leading technology, 
to provide the maximum protection, not just for you, but for society generally. And if we all do it, we protect the vulnerable. I go, uh-huh. But a lot of people let this distrust in the system, let's say, they let that erode their trust in institutions and experts whom, in my view, we should still have faith. Well, this is, this is a brilliant point because uh, there is a broader thing. It's not just about government. The proximity of major institutions to government is a problem too. The fact that they, a lot of them make the political donations and get something in return and government mm. spending or whatever. But the point is, well, we do trust the virologists, but do we trust... Do we trust Pfizer's well, Pfizer, virologist? Well, well yeah. this is this is it. But 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 the point is that no, there's been a general eroding of trust in other institutions, in mainstream media, in authority. Now, generally. one thing that read speeding up because one thing that really got me, and I can't believe they were allowed to get away with it, was JobKeeper. Oh yeah. I mean, here's ninety billion dollars, eighty-nine billion dollars in public money that I. I I concede the government needed to move quickly and the scheme was never going to be perfect. There was always going to be waste. But when they knew that people were gaming it, now, if you look at who was gaming it, we're talking wealthy private schools who increased their surplus during that time. Yep. We're talking Harvey Norman. We're talking about all the major corporations, unless well, the banks didn't because they were rolling in profits from other government policy decisions. But... Something like 40 billion of it was wasted on companies that did not need it. And how much has been paid back? Just a fraction has been paid back. So people have just gone, well, I, I looked at the doctors' colleges, the Royal Society of this and the Royal thing of this. Their thing was, oh, well, everyone else is doing it. And of course, you couldn't get through to the head guy because they're protected by sort of um, armed guards. They're, they're PR people. A phalanx of... A phalanx yeah. of, of PR people yeah. who say, can you send us an email, please, before we give you our no comment? Sure. And, and so you can't even get through to these guys to hammer them. There is... Because they're protected, there's no accountability. And it's... Uh, well, everyone else is doing it. And they're right. Everyone else is doing it. Well, AP... So it's almost unfair to go after one bunch of people like Jerry Harvey because yeah. everybody... It was a complete orgy, a total free-for-all. It was... I've never seen anything like it. I mean, this mob coming after me at the moment, the Shine Lawyers mob, no win, no fee. I just checked there. I just checked there uh, and there they are. They've got it as yeah. well. I mean, and they, dramatic increase in revenue. So it was roundly gamed when they knew it was happening. They let it keep happening and nobody did anything about it. And Josh Frydenberg doesn't appear to care. He's the architect of the scheme, but... And well, it's not his money, is it? Well, it's not his money. And, of course, who were the people that he consulted with during this period? AI Group, which is a business PR lobby, mm. funded also by weapons manufacturers, and BCA, and if you look at the members of the Business Council of Australia, which is the blue chip, the blue ribbon, the elite, most powerful business lobby in Australia, more than 50% of them or around half of them are controlled by foreign multinationals. Of course. So it could just as easily, if truth was a thing anymore, John, be called the Business Council of Foreign Multinationals. Oh, perfect. See, AP Eagers was one of those companies, and don't quote me on the specificity of these numbers, but they made something like 150-something million dollars profit, and I think it was 138 of that was JobKeeper, right? And they didn't pay it back. And one of the wheels, I think it was the chairman or the former chairman of 
AP Eagles was grilled about it by someone. And he said, we've got no intention of paying it back because we have an obligation to our stakeholders. Mm. And what he's really saying is, we took that money from the Australian taxpayer and we paid it to our shareholders because that's more important to us than the underlying morality of our conduct. Indeed, that is their director's duty to maximise wealth for their shareholders. But doesn't that exist within a framework, in an ideal world, I guess, that would exist within a framework where morality was a thing? And, and I think the, the, the moral justification for this is business is tough, business is business, we have to represent shareholders, everybody else is doing it. It's also a moral equivalence and... And, and, that's and, the Nuremberg defence. It is. That's right. It's just following orders. Yeah. Just following what shareholders want or whatever. And um, and look, they did it too. Oh. Uh, you know, this kind of thing. Like I looked at a few of them specifically. I was the first one to go out with it, actually. I busted Mervac, a huge property developer. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. pay any tax. It's got a tricky staple security. It gets government work. It's just a licence to print money. And they were doing it. Go into them. Can you explain yourself? No, no, go away. You know, we're not going to talk to you. But Lendlease, who I was hammering at the time for tax avoidance because they hadn't paid tax for 10 years or thereabouts, um, they actually made a moral decision. Well, it was a reputational decision. They um, decided, went to the board, and they decided not to take. They might have taken a bit at first in the first tranche. They decided not to take it. So companies did it, but they did it to, to preserve their reputation they yeah. didn't do because it's the right thing to do. But now, Tesla has been one of the big stars uh, marketing, uh, you know, the green car uh, in recent years, and its share price is still at great heights. You don't have the same view on Tesla's future as uh, many others. Can you tell us what the outlook for Tesla is, do you think? Tesla's a bubble. It's a ridiculously overpriced bubble. And I, Tesla's also a religion, and Elon Musk is electric Jesus. Like he just is. This is the role that he occupies. You know, he can he could basically tell you up was down and the faithful would believe it. Right. And he's made so many proclamations that have failed to come true. You know how fusion power has been five to 10 years away for the past 50 years? Mm. Well, autonomous cars and autonomous Teslas have been 18 months to two years away for about the past six years. And he makes these other promises, the Tesla semi, you know, the full-size semi-trailer. Mm. Not here yet. Years overdue. The Cybertruck is also years overdue. And these proclamations that are, have never come true are just, there's a thousand apologists for that kind of thing. And he there's no obligation on him to produce those products, I suppose. But in the domain of facts, they were promised and they're not here. And that's kind of a red flag to me. And the other thing is the car industry is just starting to come after Tesla now. There's a massive rollout of mainstream electric products. And Tesla's kind of had the EV game to itself to a large degree up until this point. But now they're going to have Volkswagen and Daimler and Hyundai and Ford and a whole bunch of the established players who really know their stuff. They're going to come after Tesla. And the only thing that can happen is Tesla will incrementally lose market share. I mean, that's a done deal. And whether that ends in tears, whether it ends in a share price collapse, who knows? But Tesla's share price cannot remain as elevated as it is now for any great length of time into the future because it's unjustifiably high. So it's just about to be subject to a 
deluge of competition by people with big marketing budgets too. But what, what about the uh, what about the future for EVs generally? I think you've made the point um, many times that Tesla, uh, it would probably, if you really want to look after the environment, that the that the actual carbon that goes into making a Tesla would outweigh the carbon of you just driving your old bomb and keeping it for another five or 10 years rather than buying a Tesla. I mean, have you done the numbers on that? Is that, is that correct? There's a is it all complete greenwashing? It's largely greenwashing. There's no question that there are benefits to EVs, such as reduction of toxic emissions in our cities, okay? Air pollution kills more people prematurely than car crashes, and that's a serious issue for big cities, okay? And no tailpipe emissions is a big fat solution to that problem. So big tick there. So if, if you care about that, okay. If you also wanna divorce yourself from buying liquid fuel, okay. If you wanna feel good about that, okay. But there's absolutely no question in my mind that the greenwashing happening with electric cars generally is the car industry saying, consume your way to a green future with our product. Okay, and I wouldn't be, I just wouldn't be buying into that because there are substantially more CO2 emissions from the manufacture of electric cars. And there's no question that the greenest option is hang on to mum's Corolla and drive it for another five to 10 years. And this is grossly unpalatable to the car industry generally. And let's not forget that the car industry has no real commitment to green this or green that. Look at one of the world's largest car makers over the past 20 years. Look at Toyota. Toyota will happily sell you a Prius or a RAV4 hybrid, but they will also sell you a two and a half ton CO2 belching Land Cruiser if that's what you want. They're completely bipolar or amoral when it comes to the products they sell. And the greenwashing of the car industry is just to appeal to people with uh, green aspirations. So they'll keep the turnover up, but the question is, and government policy will determine to a certain point as well, various government policies, how long uh, the petrol cars will, will last. So when will the last petrol car be sold? Oh, it's really the lack of government policy that is going to determine the future for Australia because we don't... We, we're not on the front foot with any of this stuff, you know, about f policy for fuel security. We don't have a Charging policy. Charging stations. Yeah, oh, look at that. We've got the largest distances between our mm. capital cities of just about mm. any other country mm. on earth. Mm. And we don't have anything like even approaching an adequate charging network if you want to drive from Sydney to Dubbo you have to do actual logistic planning, right? And in Europe, you don't have to do that. There are charging stations everywhere. We don't have the rollout of that stuff. And the other thing is recycling of the batteries, okay? We drink 30 billion litres of liquid hydrocarbon fuel every year in Australia, and you can easily calculate the environmental cost of that, okay? But if your battery croaks in your EV in the 10 year term. We don't have recycling policy in place here. So if recycling is economically rational, meaning if your 
launched battery can be taken to a facility where the raw materials can be extracted at a profit, then that's an industry. Great, free market, fantastic. But if it's a loss leader, like if you're going to make a loss recycling a battery, I see a whole lot of landfill and you really don't want lithium hexafluorophosphate in the landfill. Like you really don't want that. And we don't have policy for that kind of thing in Australia. And part of that is because in Victoria, for example, they want to tax EV owners, right? Mm. We're the only market on earth that wants to do that. And ScoMo is happy to walk into Parliament with a lump of coal saying, hydrocarbons, aren't they great, right? This is why we don't have policy and we haven't even asked the questions that matter, which are what's important for Australia's environmental future? You know, do we, is, is electric cars a real priority for us at this point? Or should we concentrate on greening up the grid? How about nuclear? Whatever, right? I don't know the answers to these questions. And mainly that's because the people in a position to make these judgment calls have not posed them. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a culture of, um, of deny, denialism at the moment, generally, isn't there? I mean, you don't, I mean, with plastics, I, we did some work on, on that and we're surprised to find that, you know, how you go out every night, you put your, your plastic, your pet bottles in your plastic and yeah. you put your cardboard in that one, then most of it ends up in landfill anyway. Or and they're going to burn it in Indonesia. Or, or they'll burn it in Indonesia. They'll take yeah. it offshore and give it to the Indos. Totally. Or, yeah, totally. But, you know, this just researching this basic, how much stuff is actually recycled, we couldn't even get an answer from any official channel <laughs> on that. There was completely just, we're not going to come to grips with that yet. Now, part of the reason is technical because plastics are all different kinds of plastics, so it's hard to recycle and, and that has to be addressed, I guess, as well as other things. But, but there's a disconnect here, right? There's a mm. massive disconnect. And, and this is like solar energy, okay? Recycling yeah. is something that we've all bought into. We've all got our yellow bins. Mm. We all put our cardboard in. Society, the individuals, behind you and me, yeah. we're, re we're recycling, mm. okay? Mm. The failure is happening upstream because the recycling is either not happening or we don't know if it's happening, right? And it's a little bit like photovoltaics. Every second house around here has a big array on the roof. So the community, individuals like you and me, have said, yeah, 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 we, we're into that. Green power, fantastic. We want to do the right thing. We've been led to believe this is the right thing. All these people have got solar panels on the roof. SCOMA still telling the electorate that coal is going to be a major part of the mix for decades to come. Like, one of us is out of touch with prevailing community sentiment, and it's not us. We're certainly behind the rest of the world. We're yeah. Not, not the, we're not behind perhaps Indonesia, but... But we're but not behind. It's no, the, the management. The community is on board. Yeah. The community is believing the science and, and what will inevitably happen to coal. Sure. Uh, but the politicians, of course, well, that's money and politics again, something we've covered um, in depth. So just just in terms of, I mean, there is a lot of co competition in the car industry. I've looked at this and, and they do struggle financially. They have their bad years and so on, and they market heavily compete in the marketing and TV advertising and that kind of thing. So there's competition there. And a lot of them don't pay any tax from time to time and stuff like that. What would you see as the greatest sort of problem with the regulation at the moment? I mean, is it general regulatory apathy? I mean, I noticed the ACCC had a crack at Mazda the other day and, and, and so on. The ACCC has actually emerged from hypersleep and had a crack at quite a few car makers. And I think the benefit to the consumer there is that many car makers 
onshore in Australia have operated under the flawed perception that consumer law only applies to toasters, right? And the ACCC's recent actions have woken some of those car makers up and said, no, 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 dude, cars as well, okay? So this means that if you have a major failure of a car outside warranty, but within the period that the legislation would consider to be requiring, quote-unquote, reasonable durability, then you are entitled to a free repair or, in some cases, a refund in full or a replacement. That's under the legislation. It's not them being good blokes about it. And I, I just find it atrocious that the barometer of excellence for customer service in the car industry, for example, is are we complying with the legislation? Like you're going to spend $250,000 on a Mercedes-Benz S-Class. And I don't know about you, but if I was going to drop that amount of coin on a car, I'd want consumer law compliance. I'd want, to, I'd want better than that. I'd want to be treated like business class, you know? I really would want to be treated nicely, not just in accordance with the minimum standard of the legislation, for example. But look, the other thing that's really hitting the car industry hard at the moment is the global shortage of computer chips because, you know, COVID, working from home, mm. lots of demand for computers, gaming consoles, TVs, things like that. So their prices nature. have gone up, their well, wholesale stuff. Well, the chips are just unavailable. The cars are not being manufactured. It's six months worth of waiting time on an average car at the moment because there's so much demand for computer chips. And obviously, if you can't supply the chips to run the computer systems in the car, you can't make the car. Okay, so that's a bit of a problem. And it's basically lifted the lid on supply chain vulnerability because the car industry is a specialist at screwing down its suppliers. They're going with one supplier for everything, screwing them right down on price. And the chip manufacturers have kind of gone, you know what, I'd rather sell more profitable chips to Samsung at the moment, if that's okay with you. And that's why if you want to buy, a, I don't know, a Hilux or maybe a RAV4 hybrid is a good example at the moment. It's going to be maybe eight months wait before you can have your car as a result of this kind of supply chain vulnerability and the impact of COVID on that. It's always been refreshing to see your opinion, your frank opinion on, on various uh, brands and yeah, so on. Yeah, the car Something, makers think that the too. The car makers, I, yeah. I bet they do. I bet you're the favourite person of the public relations department of the auto industry. You did say most fearless in your intro and the truth is most hated. But you like being hated because you're doing your job. I'm indifferent it's, to it. It's you a, want to hate me? Okay. So, so tell me, let's just run through a couple of your your best and worst. Well, just give us a, on a human level, what's the best car you've ever driven? I mean, you must have been a, you must have been treated to a different car every week when you were back in the yeah, corporate totally. media back in the day. What's the best car around to drive? I've got to tell you that uh, oh, it's a big Ferraris, question, look, Ferraris and Porsches, supercars, they leave me cold. They really do. Well, you call them fashion statements on wheels, don't they you? Are. They, they are largely fashion accessories, and certainly most of the people who own those kinds of cars are unable to drive them in the manner that they're designed to be driven. The performance that they purport to offer is inaccessible because you've got to have some pretty spooky software in your head to do that. You have to be Mark Webber, essentially, or someone just like him. What I really like is examples of cars that are 
designed to do a particular job and they're faithful to that to that role they're really good at that so if you want an accessible performance car i'll have a hyundai i30n every day of the week if you want a eight seat people mover i'll take a kia carnival because it's a really slick execution of that genre you know so these are not the kinds of cars that people imagine car enthusiasts salivate all over but you know it's it, it, for me because i trained as an engineer i'm really into design and how well it's executed and what is the actual role that that car is uh, is is targeted at and like the first time i drove a porsche it was like it was like sex with a supermodel although i haven't tested that hypothesis that you expect it to be better because you've wanted to do it your whole life and then you get in one and you go well, I've driven my. Is that I, it? I, I've driven, is that it? I've, I've driven a friend's Porsche, and frankly, I didn't like being one foot off the ground and the heavy steering and so on. And the, the tram other thing line is, and the, yeah, I've got to say, unpleasant. I mean, yeah. you know, with, when it comes to cars, you're either a wanker or you're not a wanker. And I didn't like the idea of driving a Porsche because people would look at you, and that's the whole purpose, perhaps, for a lot of people in owning these sort of cars. And you get self-conscious, sort of people staring at you. Oh, that's a Porsche driver. So I, I didn't like the Porsche experience at all, but I didn't find it very comfortable to drive either. So I think. You, you, you know a lot about more about this than me, but there's a lot of vanity in car decisions. Isn't yeah, well, here's the great dichotomy of look at me, okay? If you buy a car like that, you're in your Ferrari, people are looking at you and you've wanted that, okay? But the, the, the thing is, a large proportion of those people are thinking, what a wanker, right? They just are. Well, that's what I, I tend to think. Yeah, exactly. Like, but you do tend to be blind to that if you own that kind of car. And pro tip... It's not that nice driving a Ferrari or a Porsche from Martin Place to the eastern suburbs. It's just not. They're not meant for that. They don't feel good doing that. They tram line. You feel every bump. It's, it's just not that kind of thing. And the law mm. of diminishing returns is in play as well. Like if you buy a 7 Series or an S-Class, like one of those big, fat German luxury limousines, mm. That'll cost you 10 times as much as a mainstream car, but and it's better, but it's not 10 times better. So in the, the, the driverless car thing, which is always a few years away as well, and of course it would save some people and industries a lot, uh, a lot of money, uh, but there's a gigantic industry, the car industry, which isn't going to want to see that happen, I presume. Uh, I don't think they care. Autonomous cars, if they can deploy an autonomous car, that'd be fine because you're still selling a car. And wouldn't it be lovely to drive to the CBD and say to your car, just do a few laps while I shop and I'll ping you with my mobile when I want you to pick me up. When does that come? I mean, technologically, it could probably happen now. I mean, the infrastructure isn't there for it, but it could happen with tech technology right now, couldn't it? Here's the problem. If you released a mandate that said every car will be autonomous from 2040, yeah. they could probably do that but you'd have to scrap every existing car. And the real challenge for autonomous cars is coping with people, people behind the wheel, because people do batshit, stupid, unpredictable things. You see, you drove here several kilometres across the city to get here today, right? You saw people behind the wheel do batshit, crazy, unpredictable things. Computers do not respond well to that, okay? If you make every car autonomous, Every car in close proximity can talk to every other car and they can make agreements. We could, 
we could make traffic lights obsolete. And cars could just go, I'm approaching this intersection. And they could do like minority report science fiction precision where you go through an untraffic light controlled intersection like that, just miss. I'd be happy with the computer doing that, but not if you throw biological drivers into the mix as so, well. So they can talk to each other, but they can't talk to bad drivers. No, they can't cope with us. The problem is us. It's not the computer technology. Coping with us is a problem. The same deal with the trucks. So we're talking logistics yeah. en masse. It could happen and it will happen probably at some point, but, and that would save the transport industry a lot of money. But of course, at what point... Uh, I mean, they, these are huge killing machines, potentially. If, if, if it would only take one to put reform back one accident many years. If well, something went see, there. this is a really good question, okay, because this opens the door to the, the ethics of road death. What are the ethics of road death? How many deaths, like coronavirus, because, how many deaths are acceptable? Well, it's, it's which particular deaths are acceptable, because if, if I'm driving down the road and I go through one of those linear strip mall kinds of shopping centres and a child steps out between from between two cars and all of a sudden it's life or death and like you slam your foot on the brakes and all the technology takes over and anti-lock brakes and all of that stuff. Whether or not you miss the child and what happens to you legally after that, it's partly due to your reactivity. Could the crash have been avoided? Did you do everything you could yeah. do? In the, in the case of that, that identical situation happening with an autonomous car, the car has to decide, am I going to go on to the other side of the road and have a head-on crash with another car or do I miss the child? Mm. And that's going to be down to the ethics that are programmed in by a human. Who lives? There are four humans in one car which you're going to hit head-on. It would have to make right. a judgment upon whether they're going to be you know, if, quadriplegics yeah. or, or whatever and how does, it, how does a machine get... What that if there's sort of a situation that transpires on the road that's gonna that's, that's gonna end up with some person dying? Yeah. You got to decide who, and you got to decide who way upstream, including the, the car, car, including the people in the, your own car, yeah. of course, yep. not the little child running yep. across the road. You got to decide in the code who survives, yeah. right? And I don't think we know the answer to that ethical question. And I, I'd love to talk to a philosopher about that, like an ethics expert. How mm. do you decide? Mm. Yeah, medical ethics are a thing. Yeah, the the religious are are, are into uh, down on stem cell research, mm. right? Whereas if you suffer from Parkinson's disease, I suppose you're all for it. I don't know. What are the ethics of doing the research? What are the ethics of the computer code if someone's got to die? Who dies? Well, it sounds like it's a, it will be a long road between deciding the ethics and the community acceptability mm. and legislating. For this kind of thing and do you then know who, do you know who bridget the... driscoll is bridget driscoll's the first person who ever died of a car crash in recorded history this was in london the death happened at some low speed like eight miles an hour there was outrage like how could this sort of thing have happened you know it's it's really amazing and i see a similar kind of reaction to autonomous road death autonomous driving death like there is going to be a reaction to the, the, to the inevitable morbidity that flows from autonomous cars. And, you know, I'm not just here to talk about cars, okay, because I'm just as interested in the work that you do and the overlap 
that there is in society between, you know, the way that journalism and corporate influences are kind of manipulating the media and the media is kind of a bit of a succubus for this sort of thing. So I see a lot of overlap. You do a lot of reports on finance and politics and things of this nature, but I see the same kind of disingenuity in the motoring domain as well in terms of the spin that's put on what car companies say and what they don't say and stuff like that. So maybe we should drill down into some of that. Absolutely. These things are changing. Like community expectations do change mm. and and things that were okay to do 50 years ago, you can't do anymore. And that, that's happened with business since about 2015 uh, when they had the corporate tax inquiry and they realised just how many rip-offs were going on, that the double Dutch Irish sandwich wasn't a smart, cool thing to do. It was just a rip-off. Yeah, but public opinion only uh, public opinion only affects these companies when journalists raise these issues because they don't no corporation issues a public statement that says we're behaving like bastards. Check this out. Nobody says that. Which is precisely right? the problem. And you need to be yep. you need to yep. have good high caliber journalism to raise these red flags in the public interest. Otherwise, they're always getting swept under the rug. They just sink it without a trace. Next stop, Marianas Trench. Well, well, which brings us to the point that if you have the mainstream now control so tightly, you know, News Corp, Nine Entertainment, uh, Seven, of course, they're all on board together. Yeah. Two out of the three of them got JobKeeper. Um, as well, as well as this, the government license subsidies, as well as, as well the, as the money from Google for promoting them. And yeah. Rupert, Rupert's mob haven't paid tax in Australia for seven years. This sort right. of thing, uh, I probably never. I mean, he's he's one of the world's greatest tax dodgers. Mm. It has the temerity to get all these troops to preach to people about public morality and what yeah. you can do and can't do. I mean, it's the hypocrisy incredible. But if you look at it. These places now, as you pointed out, you go to Google and you search for something and then you get taken to a paywall. A paywall yeah. And they want you to sign up to, to get public information, what should be public information. Now, so where is it all going then? If they're all paywalled because they want to get that subscription revenue, besides their corporate advertising revenue, and a lot, who's the biggest corporate advertiser? Well, who's the biggest advertiser? Well, I, I suspect. The government or I Harvey think it Norman. could be the government. Yeah. Could be the government. So that, you don't want to go criticising the government too much, because sure. especially in an election campaign, imagine being too critical. The government says, sorry, Channel 7, never going to happen to them, of course, but mm. we're just going to cut your advertising for a week. That's going to cost you 50 million bucks. Yeah. Uh, you know, whoever's, done the, whoever's on that side of the Chinese wall is going to be talking to the editorial people. Well, that was the biggest arc up I ever had from an advertiser was in 2011. I, uh, I was driving to Canberra to do a job. And I got this call from a producer on Today Tonight, and I'd never met her, right? And she goes, well, I want to talk to you about the Australian car industry and the influx of Asian cars into Australia and all this sort of stuff. And I go, yeah, okay, but I'm going to Canberra. She said, I'll just go to Parliament House. We'll go to the studio there and we'll just get one of the reporters to read the questions to you and you can just answer them. I went, okay. So they asked me one question. Well, they asked me more than one question, but the question that got me in hot water was, what do you see the future for Australian car manufacturing being. This is in 2011. I said, I don't think there'll be an Australian car manufacturing industry in 10 years' time. I can't tell you when, but in 10 years' time, I was actually very generous in hindsight. But this caused the most monumental mm. arc up. Mm. Holden is like on the phone to the executive producer of Today Tonight. Mm. And it's 
Armageddon, mm. <laughs> right? How could you mm. let this clown say this mm. kind of thing? You know, it was an honestly held view. And uh, I think history's kind of on my side, retrospectively. Well, absolutely, 100%. But next time you go to do a piece, if you've got any sort of intestinal fortitude at all, you're going to think you're going to do it again, but that just endangers your job yeah. as a reporter, and it it gets back to the self censorship thing. Totally, and you just go, look, this is going to be too hard. So a lot of these guys in in the Canberra doing the political stuff, they bury the news story in the in the in the fifteenth paragraph. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's like the criticism uh, being way down here, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you, but who writes? Who does the headlines and the stand first or the picture choice of the yeah. bright smiling person or the but the interesting thing to me, the one heartening thing in this sort of fairly bleak exchange we've been having is mm. that you've gone from essentially nowhere on YouTube to 53, 54,000 subscribers in a very short space of time. And compared with the other mainstream motoring outlets, the Cars Guides and whatever, I've got more subscribers than most of them, which always yeah. amuses me because they've got far more resources to throw at things like video production yeah, than, than I And absolutely a so, lot more traffic, mate, too. Yeah, so, so there yeah. is a thirst for yeah. the unvarnished, honestly held view. And I hope that's what comes across in this conversation is that we're just observers of this game with fairly unique perspectives because one of the things about journalism is You've, you're an insider, you've got access. You've got access that ordinary people don't have. Mm. If you're a political journalist, you've got access to the Prime Minister to ask questions yeah. directly. If you, if you report on business, you've been taken out to lunch by some CEO and you've been given access to him that ordinary people don't get. Car, motoring journalists, same thing, different pool, right? And I think there really is a thirst among the audience for this kind of unfiltered, honest, authentic exchange of information in the domain of journalism that's just, it's absent with uh, Rupert's mob or Costello's mob. Like, it's just not there. Mm. Well, it gives you, it's a, it's, a, it's a terrific advantage in a sense, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, you've got to rely on the community for your funding because you're not getting it from corporations. Yeah. You're not getting it from government. But at the same time, the comfort of being able to speak your mind. And, of course, you get... With even people that don't agree with you on things, they are still so at least you, you can have your say. At least you've got the freedom of opinion. But, of course, now this is, this is tightening. The net's tightening around the mainstream and they're protecting it. They're subsidising now through the Google News Showcase thing. Yep. So Google's had a bit of cash extorted out of it and Facebook, and that's going to Rupert's mob, Costello's mob, yep. and a few others. And so they're actually cross subsidised That law hasn't even been ratified yet, as far as I'm aware. But the but bills the cash, being paid. But the bills yeah. are being paid. So Google's yeah. going, oh, well, okay, I'm going to go, which they've done. I checked their accounts. They've gone back to paying no tax again after paying a little tiny <laughs> bit, right, on their five-odd billion dollars worth of income yeah. that you can see. Uh, and they pay a little bit to, you know, maybe I don't know, 20, 50 million or something to, the, to these other guys. And... Deal done. Faustian Pact has, has been struck. Yeah. And uh, the question, of course, is where it, where it goes. How far is it going to go? Because we've seen the latest. Dutton trying to set up a, you know, at least talking about setting up a fund to be able to sue people for defamation in social media. Mm. But social media is jacking up. They're sick of it. But the government's talking about making YouTube a publisher so that YouTube could be a... 
co-respondent in a defamation case because, as you know, if... Well, they are in the Friendly Geordies case. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And, and that hasn't been dismissed. Well, right? to, give, that, to give Google, which owns YouTube, it's, 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 um, yeah. it's, it's credit. They are, are actually fighting the rest of the Barilaro action because mm. Barilaro, of course, walked away from suing Jordan Shanks because yeah. he knew Jordan was just going to use it as terrific publicity. And sure enough, he's... He got another 100,000 subscribers during that time. Absolutely. When Barilaro was suing him. So it was good publicity. A stupid move by Barilaro. Yeah. To save face and maybe to get a few dollars, John Barilaro decided to keep the action on Google and they've said, sorry, we're not caving into this one. Mm. It's too public for us. Usually they'll just sling a little bit of money somewhere. And, but it's too, too public. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. Now, if a court comes down and says that, yes, YouTube, you're a publisher, not a platform, um, already, you know, it's not if somebody comments the High Court decision last year, if somebody comments on somebody else's thread without even the person who's running the thread knowing it, that's now libel because they're yeah. relying on case law from the 18th century in England. Yeah. When, it's all gone. Yeah. The past 20 years of the internet has changed everything and the law is way back, as far literally back as the 1600s, 1700s. I know. We're, we're, talking, we're, talking the, we're talking the carrier pigeon was the epitome of communications technology when the, the law was framed, right? And yet old laws apply to modern offences. Yeah. This is the problem. The common law. And the High Court, to give them credit, the High Court, its role is to adjudicate on the laws. Its role isn't to make the laws. Yeah, it doesn't the set the ball policy. The yeah. is squarely in the court of the legislators, yeah. which is Parliament. And, and to get back to the original, to come full circle, Parliament's been enfeebled by corporate money by lobbying influence and political donations and by credibility because the public confidence is falling. So their ability to be able to go out and just enact good laws is seriously diminished. So we're in this kind of like murky, you know, we're paddling on the spot. This is what's happening and, and nothing much is going ahead and things that need to be done in political and government terms aren't getting done. So the question is, I mean, where does it go? Well, that's the, that is the $64,000 question, isn't it, right? Because we might wake up in 10 years' time and find that there's a whole bunch of additional independent journalists just like us having emerged from this vacuum because mm. nature does a boil a vacuum and mm. there is a vacuum of there's a vacuum. independent journalism like this. Mm. And or we could wake up and they've shut us cracked down, down on yeah, them because yeah. their, their media allies will support the extinguishing of their competition. But I don't want they to never mention in. us because they don't want to give us any airplay. And so yeah. it's kind of like if the government decided to bring in these anti, you know, social media laws. Um, I mean, some of them are probably, I mean, having to have your name on a post, I think that's probably reasonable stuff like that. But the fact that you could sue so easily. But the number of people hiding behind fake names, like do mm. you engage with Green Man 222? Occasionally you can't help yourself, can you? Occasionally somebody will just be such a dick that you'll just go, you'll, yeah, you know, whatever. But no, generally, I mean, very rarely. I, I, I don't like to block people. I just mute them. If you have to append your name to something you say, though, I think I see that as a net positive. That's positive, yeah. Because be. hiding behind some fake name no. does, okay. it does empower you to release the worst part, inflict the worst parts it of your does, character. But it gets back to the problem with that, of course, is I'm a bit of a radical free speech guy. The reason yeah. is because I can cop a bit of criticism, Me always too. have, and 
I kind of quite like it. Sometimes I miss it if I'm not, you know, I used to get death threats, not getting yeah. them anymore. Yeah, I haven't had one for a week. Like, what have I done? Am I losing my that's touch? That's right. Nobody's touching <laughs> me up on Twitter. Look what's going on. But I think the problem with that is that because of the way society is going with big government and these big institutions that are concentrating, they're now, as we know from JobKeeper, they're all too big to fail. If the thousands of people that work there, they can't, if they've all got social media policies, they'll get sacked. For expressing their opinion. Sure. Look at look at the guy that worked for um, oh, uh, Michaela Banerjee. Uh, she was a public servant. She said something about government's policy on asylum seekers. Got the sack. Went all the way to the high court. The court ruled on law and upheld the the sacking. So, the question, of course, is if society's going that way, we're in these gigantic corporate silos with all these rules around what you can say. That's like a communicational North Korea. Well, it. it, it it means if they're allied to the government and you're part of them, you cannot express dissent. So I would say, I, I agree with you, I think people should have their names on their posts and anonymous cowardly tweeters, as I call them, I don't have any time for them. But the fact is, there's a lot of people out there that are making good contributions anonymously. Mm. Uh, it tends to be a bit of a mob rule, someone's, but because they work for one of these institutions. Yeah, if you have a legitimate threat that some kind of harm is going to befall you, mm. inclusive of losing your job mm. and therefore your ability to support your family, pay the mortgage, all of that stuff, mm. then fair enough. Uh, and for well, you're whistleblowers gonna too. You're going to self-censor, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. you need to protect the identity of whistleblowers as well because mm. obviously there are consequences for them. And just in general, if you append your name to your view you're more likely to be circumspect and responsible with what you say. And that's a net positive. It is positive. There's no doubt about that. Everyone I knows just... who you are when you talk on your channel. Everyone knows who I am. And my reputation mm. and your reputation, such as they are, they, they rest on the legitimacy of the next thing you say. That or, or not. Or otherwise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. No, that's exactly right. I, and I agree with you. I just think that the one possible outcome is as you have these big corporate silos everywhere, you will have people, if they did bring that in, you'd have more of a sort of haves and have nots situation anyway. I mean, it's going that way mm. anyway in a sort of, you know, haves and have not. I mean, inequalities since the, uh, since the virus is really just completely ballooned. It's really exploded. Totally. And, um, I mean, if you look at the asset prices on the ASX and property prices, they've just gone. So the people that have stuff are worth a lot more. Mm -hmm. The people that have nothing are still doing their 41, what is it? No, $44 a day now. Yeah. Uh, so now eventually with AI, and you know more about this than me, but AI is going to eventually make entire sections of workforces redundant, which means that how do we look after the rest of the, let's say the 20% structural I mean, already there's a bloke that I used to work with. He sets up a bot service which does journalism. Um, just it's all automated, all digitised. He just pulls stuff. His computers <gasps> pull stuff down from from the SEC, from Wall Street, and from the Nasdaq and Bloomberg. They just pull all this stuff in, and it, they you don't actually need reporters anymore. You can just get it done automatically. <laughs> you still need pundits like me and you, mate, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to waffle yeah. on with their big opinions. Sure. But you won't need reporters to go, the profit went up this much, the dividend thing, the CEO said this and blah, blah, blah. That that could go tomorrow. Now, that just in our little workforce, that, re again, gets rid of a whole lot more jobs. Totally. don't know what happens with cars. I don't know what happens with other sectors. But, but you news, to... news could go under the bus easily like that. 
just the reporting of news. News could get under the bus. If you look at banking, like that's facing major structural issues too. Mm. They're hanging onto their, they're hanging onto their turf as well. So, yeah. I think we're only a little bit of the way through this whole digital revolution thing, and it's just it's like the Chinese curse about living in interesting times, isn't it? And look, it is, I think yeah, the other yeah. thing that we should canvas in in closing is that it really has been an interesting three years. We had the fires and we thought things couldn't get worse than that and then look what happened. Mm. Do you see things getting back to pre-COVID normalcy in society or are we sort of irrevocably changed? Well, I think just talking to people that used to go into work in the city every day, I think there's going to be a lot of changed behaviours. I think people are more comfortable with working remotely. Well, you've got your COVID formal wear on for this, this interview. And this so is on, I'm, I'm, mean, dressed, I'm overdressed, mate. I this is like spit. job interview. <laughs> so, Come on. So uh, where does it all go? Look, a lot of it will return. I mean, human nature doesn't change, mm. just technology changes, doesn't it? So things will, things will return, but I, I, I'm not sure... Like, well, you know, it's like one of the law firms guys talking to in the city, they had eight floors, they're going to go back to four or something like mm. that. What happens to that is it come housing, Zoom, now everyone can Zoom. Sure. So do you really need the travel? Do you need to travel as much? Uh, I think it's sped up the inequality thing because of government decisions. And this is, I think, the biggest thing. I think we really have this this serious problem with government policy providing for the future generations. And, of course, well, there's one we missed, of course, in this conversation. We were talking about health and, and other decisions that government makes, the climate stuff. Oh, totally. Where do they get their advice from? When it, when it comes to defence, they seem to get their advice from the weapons manufacturers, from think tanks that are funded by weapons manufacturers like ASPI. Yeah, and knock me down with a feather. The advice is, here's some hardware you need to buy. That's right. And where? And that's right. And where did like a tank? How how good's a tank? Yeah. And then and then Gladys Berejiklian cover this. Where does she get her health advice? Well, she probably gets a bit from health people, but where's she actually taking the advice? And certainly, um, Don Perrottet. Mm. I mean. From the business council, from the from business people, yeah, yeah and from and party donors and this sort of thing. So, when it comes to climate, we know where they're getting advice on climate action from. They're getting it squarely from fossil fuel companies. Sure, and this is the problem. And this gets back to your point about Australia being a bit of a laughing stock. COP twenty six in Glasgow, like you know, it was a bit. Could you know, we have looked any worse? You know, and then this deal with Arcus, which is the AUKUS, I think it's called, which is reactive. It's a bit last century, isn't it? Mm. Like we're sitting in the middle of Asia and we're doing a deal with the old motherland and the Yanks who are fine. They're, they're in the sunset of their imperialism now. And we're beating the drums of war and against China. And we're just going China. like that to China. And, and, it's, and, and we're like this big and China is yeah. like, yeah. you know. So they're getting, they're getting advice. They're not in, with health. They're not taking it totally from the scientists. Sure. This is the problem. And so... You've got to look about where they're getting their advice from, where they're acting, and it just goes to the corporatisation of the state and an obesant media which isn't holding people to account. Mind you, we shouldn't overplay the role of the media. There's many other factors. But certainly it's, it's, it's difficult to know where it's going to... difficult to know where it's going to, to go here, and you would think that if they do try to repress public opinion and so on, it could get a little bit nasty. Yeah, there's eventually going to come to a spot where there's a little bit of backlash or maybe a lot of backlash. And that that tends to be self-correcting over time, but it can be quite um, 
interesting in the moment. And we know that the regulators are pretty intolerant of dissent in Australia. So mm. that could be the one certainty in all of this is there's not going to be a shortage of things for you or I to You're report about lots of material. over the next few lots years. Of material. So we should revisit this if uh, if you like. And it's been uh, very interesting talking to you because you've got so many uh, similar there's so many similar things about the way you operate to the way I operate, in particular the number of the impressive number of bridges you must have burnt to get where you are today. And uh, I've done the same sort of thing. So anyway, I, I hope you keep burning a few more. Many of the bridges. We should do it again sometime. Well, it's been an endurance event, but I'm interested to hear from you. If you'd like to hear this kind of thing, give us a few suggestions. What would you like us to dance around next time? I'd love to know. You can let me know on my channel or on Michael's channel. I'd be really interested in what you think. Thanks very much for watching.